welcome to dollars and cents with a couple of gents making money moves with the finest of gents come and pull up a seat cause we're proud to present how to make some good decisions when you're on the fence rob and steve gonna tell you how to do it the best hello welcome episode three of dollars and cents with a couple of gents i am again one of those gents Stephen ellis and i am the other of those gents robert wolfson so welcome back. Uh, a bit of an impromptu episode from us. Uh, it is Stampede Week here in Calgary. Yeah, it feels weird downtown. People are walking around wearing their cowboy boots and their cowboy duds, but there's no uh, festival at the Stampede Grounds this year. No Stampede. A few people, Rob included, trying to uh, to look the part regardless. Yeah, I dusted up my cowboy boots, that's for sure, for the 10 days per year that I wear them. Yeah, exactly. you've got to make the most of them. That they Break out the hat before it goes back in storage. Yeah, that's right. And if you have a craving, you can go out to the YYCU food trucks and get your mini donut fix. That's true. I think the lineups are pretty long, but uh, I think it's worth it for mini donuts. So as I mentioned, a bit of an impromptu episode here. We want to take a bit of a different approach than we have in our previous two episodes. We want to talk a bit more about, you know, really current events, what's happening out there you know, what we're seeing in the mainstream media, uh, a little bit about the markets and, and the economy. And really, um, you know, as a starting point, looking at what's top of most people's mind, which would be COVID-19 and um, some of the developments and things that are happening there. Canada and Calgary, for sure, are doing great jobs at reducing the number of new daily cases. Even we're just walking around downtown grabbing our lunch today, Steve, and it's a bit busier, uh, you know, around the food courts than it was even, you know, a week ago at the end of June. Uh, but we still have to remember that we still need to be diligent as uh, we're not through the first wave yet. So there's lots of chatter about is it a second wave? Is it an extension of the first wave? When you look at the recent data, we're at about 12 million cases globally, worldwide, and about 550,000 deaths. So diligence still needs to be top of mind. Yeah, and I think it's different, uh, you know, from region to region. So, you know, to sort of look at it and say, you know, what what wave are we in here? You know, what it looks like in Canada in particular looks very different than what we're seeing in, in the U.S. And I think that's what you're alluding to, Rob. Yeah, I've actually been looking uh, pretty regularly and Canadians are doing a great job. We're at about approximately 250 new daily cases per day, approximately 40 to 50 in Alberta, but there's still new cases every day. Uh, And then of course you see the news flow south of the border, which I think Steve, you're going to talk about some numbers and you see what's happening down there. Yeah, that's right, Rob. I mean, obviously the the spike in cases in the U.S. is is really dominating the news uh, these days. And so, you know, we're, we're starting to see some measurements now in terms of cases where they're actually looking at the number of cases in the last seven days compared to the number of cases over the last 28 days and making that comparison. And, and the reason for that is obviously we've seen a huge spike uh, even in the last seven days. So let's talk a bit about the U.S. because, again, I think that's uh, closest to home for most of us other than in Canada. Uh, but we don't have the same same type of situation where we're actually seeing the number of new cases over the last seven days declining relative to they uh, to where they were over the last 28 uh, and certainly uh, where they were in May. In the U.S., they've seen uh, a spike, and uh, over the last 28 days, uh, there was 110.8 cases per million. That's new cases. 
Uh, now they've spiked to 156.9 new cases per million of population. That's an increase of 41.6%. So again, that's where a lot of the, the concern is, uh, is coming from, obviously. And so that's dominating the news. One thing to, to consider, though, is that is actually not the biggest jump globally. In fact, that's coming from Australia, where they've seen a jump of 139.2% uh, over that same period of time. But that's going from 2.26 to 5.42. So, again, um, you know, big jump, but still the numbers in Australia are quite low. I'll just break that down even further, uh, just out of interest for anybody out there. The way that breaks down in the U.S. is uh, in Miami-Dade, uh, they have an 83.3% jump in the last seven days relative to the last 28. Seattle up 51.5, San Francisco 35.9, Houston 31.1. On the bright side, New York City's done a great job. They're down 5.7%. So the reason we bring this up really is obviously people are interested, but you know, as it relates back to markets, it is what's causing a lot of concern out there for people. You know, while this is happening and cases are spiking in the US, we have seen with a few exceptions, uh, the markets continue to rally and, and people are sort of having a tough time getting their head around that, understandably so. Yeah, from a market basis, it's it's really uh, a tale of two sectors, I would say. It's the stay-at-home versus the not-stay-at-home. You still have your energy and your financials continuing to lag, but you really have those big five, you know, quote-unquote technology stay-at-home stocks, your Facebook, your Apple, Amazon, Google, Netflix, those types of companies that are really working in the stay-at-home play that are really driving the market. When you, if you were to strip those companies out and put the market on an equal weight basis, whereas every stock is an equal representation relative to market cap, where the larger you are, the bigger determination you have on the overall index, the overall performance of the market on an equal weight basis is not as strong. And this relates back to uh, one of the things that the market is really paying attention to right now is obviously job losses and where we're sitting as far as people that were out of work and people that are getting back to work. Even yesterday, so we're recording today on July the 9th, but yesterday the U.S. Department of Labor reported uh, their seasonally adjusted jobless claims at about 1.3 million uh, for the week ending July the 4th. Now that data in itself is the 14th consecutive week of improvement, but the number of claims are still uh, persistently above the 1 million mark per week. Uh, now that advance does bring uh, the seasonally adjusted unemployment rate down to about 12%, 12 and a half, about 12.4% to be exact. We were above 16% even a couple months ago, which historically are huge numbers, uh, numbers we haven't seen ever, even during the Great Depression. But you know, there's still 12% of the uh, population that are unemployed and looking for work. Now the next factor though is what they call continuing claims, which is people that have already filed but they're filing again, so that's what they call continuing claims. And that has come down from 25 million in the US down to 18 million. So still a huge number, but obviously lower than uh, the record number back in May. Now, as it relates closer to home in Canada, I don't have the exact uh, figure in front of me, but uh, from a percentage basis, we're definitely trending in the same, same direction. Our unemployment rate is also around 12%, whereas it was above 15% a few short weeks ago. 
Now, back to the market, you know, a lot of people are concerned because if, if some of these cities and states that do have a spike in cases, you know, even a couple months ago, we were at 20,000 new cases in the U.S. nationally. Now we're closer to 60,000 new cases per day. Do these states have to maybe look at reclosing or slowing down the reopening and now these jobs that were potentially going to be there are not going to be there any longer. So these continuing claims could continue to creep up higher again. And as it relates to the aid package, what they call the CARES or the Coronavirus Aid Relief and Economic Security Package, where every American was getting $600 a week, of course, that money, some of most of these people were making more money on the aid than what they were getting actually working. So there hasn't been that incentive to go back to work. But that is supposed to expire at the end of July. So what, what are the politicians uh, in America going to do? Are they going to extend the aid package because now there's a high risk of unemployment still economies do have to you know tail back in the reopening or do they just tailor it back or end it all together so that's a topic for debate that we'll have to watch yeah rob and i think the same argument is being made here north of the border as well as it pertains to the canadian emergency response benefit rob we're jumping back and forth across the border here in terms of our numbers Uh, but let's stick with canada for a second the federal government just released a fiscal update, and I know that you've got some numbers there. If you could share those, that'd be great. Yeah, I mean, the Parliamentary Budget Office estimated uh, our deficit to be around $250 billion, but when the report came out yesterday, it was actually higher than anticipated. It was closer to $343 billion, which is about 15.9% of our GDP. Now, this surprise is likely attributed to the increase of the government's COVID-19 wage subsidy program, which you were just alluding to. And that was also extended to September, also with broadened eligibility criteria. Now, from an export basis, our GDP is expected to contract this year in 2020 by 6.8%, but also expecting to rebound to about 5.5% growth for, for Canada next year in 2021. One other interesting bullet point in the update, Steve, was that Corporate tax receipts will come down by about 22% compared to last year. Personal income tax and GST receipts could also fall by about 14 and 20% respectively. And I just highlight those three things in particular because those three items comprise about 80% of the revenue which our federal government brings in each year. Yeah, Rob, and actually it's important to note uh, that as a result of that, uh, we actually saw Canada's credit rating drop from a AAA to a AA. So, Rob, you mentioned that the quote-unquote stay-at-home stocks are uh, surging and receiving a lot of attention, and and we get a lot of inquiries about those. One of the other sectors, or a commodity in this case, that gets a lot of attention when you have instability in the markets and and global economies uh, is gold. You know, it goes back far before you and I's time in, in this business, where gold is seen as a bit of a safe haven. So... This time around, no different in that respect, but a little bit different in in terms of the fact that it's still rallying here, uh, even though we have seen the markets start to bounce back a bit. Uh, So we've actually seen gold futures cross over the $1,800 an ounce mark. Uh, It's happened more than once now. And now we've actually seen prices increase above the $1,800 mark as well. That's the highest since 2011. One reason for sure is because, as we were just talking about, central banks around the world basically have the printing presses rolling right now. So eventually, you would think that this would have to be inflationary uh, and we'll have to eventually pay back this debt. So because of that and the uncertainty around that, uh, investors have been moving to gold.
One thing that I would say about gold, and again, I think this attitude still persists maybe to a lesser extent than it did 15 or even 20 years ago, uh, is that a lot of people feel that gold just goes up, right? We, we still see that attitude persisting. Money under the mattress, physical commodity, hiding gold bars in the attic. You know, the reality is that gold prices do fluctuate. So it's important to to keep track of that and understand that gold prices are cyclical as well. Yeah, and like you just mentioned, this is the highest that gold prices have been in years since 2011. So if we were to rewind the calendar about six months ago, gold was approximately $1,400 an ounce. And if you're to go back the decade before that, it was really flat to even down. So exactly to your point, Steve. So Rob, we are in Calgary and it is Stampede Week, so we'd be remiss if we didn't touch on oil a little bit. So we've got some numbers here in terms of sort of where energy prices are and trying to shed some light on what some of the actual numbers look like. So as a starting point, uh, we've seen WTI up week over week around 3%. Now obviously that changes on a daily basis and, and could already be outdated by the time you listen to this. Uh, and stocks were up 1% week over week respectively. It's worth noting just the discrepancy in terms of uh, oil price movement, the commodity price movement, and the movement of the stocks. Rob's going to touch a little bit on that uh, a bit later. Uh, Also, just a bit of an update on rig counts. In the past week, rig count has increased nine rigs to 27. Those increases have come primarily in Alberta up uh, seven week over week. The majority of active rigs, 22 of 27, continue to target gas objectives. Uh, 19 of the active rigs are operating in Alberta, 7 in BC, and 1 in Saskatchewan. So uh, that gives you a bit of a macro look at uh, the sector. Yeah, those are all great points, Steve. And even recently, we've seen a lot of resistance as the the price of WTI crude oil hovers around $40. We've tended to be between $40 and $41. There's definitely a lot of resistance to get higher than $41. And I think that's uh, commensurate with all of the the new cases that you're seeing in the U.S. You know, initially back uh, in in the springtime in March, April, when we're in the middle of the stay-at-home quarantine, you know, a lot of the estimates were looking at close to a 20 to 30 million barrels a day demand destruction because, of course, you're staying at home, you're not consuming, you're not going to work, you're not uh, taking a, a trip or driving around, so you're just not consuming oil. But, of course, as economies reopen and people get back to work and, and you start to do things the way you used to, that, that demand is returning. But there's definitely a worry uh, if, if economies do have to re-shut down or slow down their shutdown, you're, you're not going to have uh, that, that demand coming back. But on the flip side, just as you were talking about, uh, you, you do see a little bit of production coming back. But a lot of the companies, both uh, not only in Canada but in the U.S., have really tailed back their capital expenditures. They're not producing as much. So that in turn is also helping reduce the amount of supply that's coming to market. So if we do have demand coming back and supply is also coming down, you could in theory, if economies stay open, you could see the supply demand imbalance be somewhat closer in check than what we thought even six weeks ago. Yeah, and Rob, you can't talk about supply without talking about OPEC. So maybe you can just touch on uh, uh, commitments that OPEC has made. Or OPEC Plus, I guess we should call it. Yeah, OPEC Plus, and then for for a couple of weeks, they're OPEC, because, of course, uh, uh, you know one of the big things that happened was the, the Saudis and the Russians did terminate their agreement for a short period of time there, and the Saudis were going to flood the market, and that was in the middle of COVID as well, so that definitely had an initial leg down in the price of oil. But they have since returned to the bargaining table, 
they did agree to uh, reduce production by 9.7 million barrels a day. Uh, that was supposed to expire as of June 30th, but they did meet last month to extend that production supply cap through July, and they're actually meeting again, Steve, next week on July the 15th to look at if they're going to extend that again or leave it as is. If they don't extend that uh, production cut, they're still not going to produce as much as what they were, but it will come down to 7.7 million barrels a day, and that will stay in place for the rest of 2020. So that for sure is helping support the price of oil as well. Yeah, Robin, maybe just to sum up on energy, uh, some commentary on the individual equities and how they're behaving relative to the overall market as well as uh, commodity prices. Yeah, typically when you have the price of crude oil going up, energy stocks go up. If you have price of crude oil go down, uh, energy stocks go down. That makes sense. But we've seen this now probably for the past six to nine months, uh, the relationship between crude oil and the energy stocks have disconnected. So even though we've had a rise in WTI and stabilization of WTI, energy equities have not uh, have not come along for the ride. Now, not all stocks are created equal, so definitely your smaller cap, your junior producers, you know, the ones that definitely need that cash flow, they need to get out there and produce, you know, they may, they may not have the balance sheet, uh, so they're in a bit more trouble. Your, your larger caps, they're hurting as well, but they're going to survive. They've been through this before. The management teams know what to do. What we have seen, Steve, is the pipelines, the infrastructures like your your Embridges, your Peminas of the world, uh, they're, they're doing just fine. They're, you know, the stock prices are down, but you're getting good dividends. They can afford to pay the dividends, and they'll be okay. So for patient investors, it's a good place to hide out. But you're right, uh, the, the energy sector continues to lag the actual price of WTI crude oil. Yeah, I often sort of suggest that the, the pipelines are, are acting more like utilities in this market than they are energy stocks. Yeah, and uh, one acronym we hear all the time is TINA, or there's no alternative. When you have government bond yields, you know, for a five-year government Canada bond at 0.4% or a one-year GIC at 1%, uh, you'd rather go buy an Enbridge that's paying 7% or a permanent pipeline that's paying 7% uh, dividend yields because, uh, as I already mentioned, they do have the balance sheets to, to be able to survive this current environment and pay those dividends. So one more sector we want to talk about is, is the airlines. Uh, you know, they get a lot of attention here uh, due to the fact that, obviously, travel has been restricted globally. Uh, so share prices of airline stocks has declined significantly. And one of the things that happens when you see that is, you know, people are looking for opportunities and, and see those prices. We know that the airlines are getting a lot of the fiscal stimulus from the government. Um, and so, you know, a lot of people see uh, some opportunity there, knowing that uh, they'll likely survive as a result of that. And seeing that uh, prices are trading at almost historically low levels. So, Again, uh, not to put forth our advice necessarily in terms of whether or not you should buy airline stocks, but rather sort of just give you a little bit of a synopsis in terms of uh, what that sector looks like and, and what's happening in terms of flights and passenger numbers. So we've been looking at some numbers uh, on a year-over-year basis, uh, looking at how they've changed in terms of passenger numbers and, and scheduled flights. We don't have Canada's figures, but um, you know, I would suspect they're fairly similar to what we're seeing in the U.S., where we saw um, the uh, number of flights decrease year over year, really top out in May in the U.S. We saw that uh, scheduled flights down 74.2%. That has actually recovered slightly here uh, at the end of June to about 57.4% uh, down. In terms of uh, actual airline passenger numbers, uh, we get that 
from the U.S. Transportation Security Administration, otherwise known as the TSA. Uh, obviously, they're tracking the number of people actually boarding planes and as, as near a real-time indicator as you can probably find. And that's actually showing that 641,761 passengers passed through security checkpoints in airports across the United States on July 7th, 2020. So obviously, data is pretty well up to date. That was a 74.4% decline from the same day in 2019. The low point uh, is seen as being April 14th, uh, where they reported only 87,534 passengers, representing only 4% of the numbers processed on the same day in the prior year. So that just gives you some perspective in terms of what that sector looks like, how many people are traveling. We know that uh, it is increasing, and that's obviously positive. They are attributing a lot of that to more regional traffic, obviously, with international travel still being restricted in a lot of cases, and uh, business travel actually starting to, to return to a certain extent. So obviously, it's positive from a number of perspectives that we are seeing those numbers increase, uh, but still obviously a long way from the uh, 2.5 million, approximately, that we saw at the same time in 2019. So looking to return, and, and obviously that helps with demand for oil, uh, just to draw that comparison between the two sectors. So let's finish off with the banks. Uh, Rob, I'll, I'll turn it over to you to have a bit of a discussion there. Yeah, excellent, uh, excellent sector to finish off on, Steve. I mean, most investors, uh, not only ours, but I'm sure many out there listening will have at least one, if not many, Canadian bank and an insurance company for that matter in their portfolio and along with energy the other sector that has not really participated in the rally are the financials you know one reason obviously is the fact that the bank of canada has cut rates all the way down from 1.75 percent down to 0.25 percent along with all the other central bankers so one kind of acronym is nim or net interest margin so as much as the banks are still making tons of money and we all know that um, they're just not making as much you know when when you're paying 2% for your mortgage, they're just not making as much money on the spread there. So so, uh, so the banks are still profitable, no doubt, but compared to what they were making before, it's just hard to beat those numbers. And of course, as people are out of work and, and not going to work, maybe you've been laid off, maybe you've been furloughed, or maybe you're a tenant and you can't pay your rent, and of course you're looking for deferral on your mortgage payments, or you can't pay your loan or your credit card payment. So then you, so now the banks have to do what they call a, a credit loss provision. So all, all of the banks have to put basically set aside the amount of capital uh, to write down bad loans where people ultimately will not pay their loans. So with, the, with that, the banks have declined. Uh, they have not really bounced back. Now, over time, the banks are great investments, but they, but they do have a cyclicality to them as well. But the one, one of the main reasons that investors do own banks is also for the dividends, Steve. And, and you know, after the financial crisis, uh, OSFI, which is the regulator, mandated all the banks to increase the amount of cash that they have uh, just to make sure that there's no run on the banks, they have enough capital to pay dividends, uh, make sure they have enough capital set aside for investors or, or savers that wanted to get access to the capital. So all of those ratios were increased over the last 12 years after the financial crisis. And because of all that good work in the past decade, they do all of the banks do have tons of cash. So therefore, the dividends that they're paying today are secure. Uh, now, never say never, but every CEO came out uh, in the middle of, of, of the height of the pandemic and the volatility and reiterated the fact that they do have strong balance sheets, they can pay their dividends. Now, you're, you're likely not going to see dividend increases, so for sure they're not going to raise those dividends, 
but they also they're also committed to paying it because they know so many investors rely on those dividends, and and it's such and it's one of the main reasons that investors do hold uh, financial stocks. So whether it's a Scotia Bank, uh, Royal TD, BMO, uh, Commerce, uh, Manny Life, Sun Life, all blue chip companies, and they should all continue to pay their dividends. Patience is required for sure from a capital perspective, but they'll cycle back in time. So depending on what your time horizon is, definitely our recommendation is to maintain. And even if you're underweight, it's a good time to buy. When else can you buy Scotiabank with over a 6% dividend? You know, Manulife over a 6% dividend. Royal Bank, you know, 4.5% dividend. It's just uh, amazing numbers. And uh, again, back to that Tina, there is no other alternative. You know, if, if, you have, uh, if you have the risk tolerance, you can buy a GIC for one year at 1%, you know, or go buy Scotiabank with a 6.3% dividend. Yeah, I think, you know, you mentioned some really positive things about the bank, um, you know, the increase in capital requirements. I think what's weighing on the banks ultimately is a concern over loan losses, and you alluded to that, right? People being able to essentially meet their debt obligations. And I think that will linger for a while. I, you know, I think really when you look at the environment we're in, uh, I, don't, I don't see that concern subsiding a great deal anytime soon. But I think we're comfortable, again, for all the reasons that you alluded to earlier, Rob, that, you know, the banks and the insurance companies will be okay. It's just a, a bit of a waiting game. And the banks over the years, certainly dating back to 2008, 2009, have tightened their lending requirements. Uh, the federal government has also contributed in that respect, which I think does abate some of the concerns around loan losses. An example of that most recently is the changes that were made to the mortgage requirements that came into effect on July 1st. So uh, that's uh, that's all we've got on our agenda for today. Obviously, we could probably go on for hours talking about the markets and current events and everything that's happening out there. But uh, a few quick points just to, to update you on a few things. Yeah, if you have any questions, if you want to talk with us about any of the sectors that we just discussed or any others, please feel free to take a look at our website, ellisfinancialgroup.ca. Yeah, obviously a lot of the things we've discussed today uh, beyond the, the sort of the facts and figures, you know, we've got a bit of our opinion mixed in there as well. Um, again, by all means, uh, happy to have any discussions with you if, if there's anything you uh, disagree with or want us to elaborate on at all. Yeah, not everyone has the same investment objective or risk tolerance time horizon, so there's not a one-size-fits-all type of answer. So I know I mentioned a couple of companies earlier uh, in the podcast, not necessarily as recommendations, but we're definitely happy to take a look and see what the right answer is for you. Yeah, we mentioned Enbridge, and, and just because we like Enbridge doesn't mean that it, it fits everyone's portfolio. You know, uh, do your own research, speak to your advisor, uh, or certainly if you'd like us to have that discussion with you uh, personally, we're, we're happy to do that as well. As always, it would be remiss if we didn't say, please subscribe, tell your friends, tell your neighbors, tell your coworkers. I think what's more important than that at this point is that you haven't given us a funny financial related name because we haven't talked that about any investors. So I'm going to jump in. It's Stampede Week. You're wearing a, a Stampede shirt with the name Jack Daniels on it. So we'll say that Jack Daniels is our investor. We promised, we don't have a story, it doesn't matter. That's our, our hypothetical investor for the day. But as you know, behind, behind every Jack Daniels, I'm sure there's a story. Rob, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm sure, Steve, I'm sure. Yeah. Before we sign off, remember to subscribe 
Yeah, and uh, as always, as we mentioned in the previous ones, if you have not listened, go back and listen to the previous ones. Let us know what you want us to talk about. Uh, send us a topic. Yeah, agree. We love the feedback, as long as it's all positive, of course. Yeah, if it's negative feedback, it was someone else's <laughs> podcast you're listening to. Yeah, that's right. So with that, once again, I am Stephen Ellis. And I am Robert Wolfson. And we are... A couple of gents. And we'll talk to you again soon.